Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, the mass migration at the border takes center stage in national politics. The politics of immigration has become toxic, uh, but the challenge we're facing is a real one. And how high school football helped Uvalde heal. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. This week, Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson and over 60 Republican members of Congress took a one-day trip to the Texas-Mexico border at Eagle Pass. Well, we want to thank all of you for being here today. Uh, I want to thank all of my colleagues for joining me here in the epicenter of the, uh, of the crisis that we're having on the border here in Eagle Pass, Texas. It's been quite a day. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, what we've learned here today. Uh, but I first want to tell you that we have uh, a great cross-section of the, of the House. We have 64 House Republicans that have joined us here in Eagle Pass. They represent 26 states, one U.S. territory. You have everybody from, uh, from, from California to Maryland, from Michigan to, to Florida. We, we represent over half the U.S. states because every state in America is now a border state. And we've seen that on vivid display today. Today we were able to meet with local residents, with sheriffs, with the Texas DPS. We also toured the CBP processing facility here in Eagle Pass, and it's been an eye-opener. One thing is absolutely clear. America is at a breaking point with record levels of illegal immigration. And today we got a first-hand look at the damage and the chaos the border catastrophe is causing in all of our communities. The situation here and across the country is truly unconscionable. We would describe it as both heartbreaking and infuriating. Our communities are overrun. We have local resources that are being strapped. We have lethal drugs that are pouring into our country at record levels. And it's in less than three years that President Biden took office that this has happened. That we have over 7 million illegal encounters at the border, nearly 2 million known gotaways, and that doesn't count the many that are undetected at 312 suspects on the terrorist watch list that have been apprehended. We have no idea how many terrorists have come into the country and set up terrorism cells across the nation. Last month alone, we saw the most illegal crossings in recorded history. It is an unmitigated disaster, a catastrophe. And what's more tragic is that it's a disaster of the president's own design. Uh, about an hour ago, we uh, had lunch, and, and there are a number of sheriffs that uh, work and serve here along the border of Texas. The sheriff of Terrell County was one of them. He was a former Border Patrol agent for 26 years, and he said in his estimation, it took less than six months for the Biden administration to dismantle 100 years of progress that the U.S. Border Patrol had achieved. Clearly, the politics of the migration mess was on the agenda for the Republican delegation while they were at the border because Speaker Johnson has not been in favor of possible solutions like appropriating additional funds for customs and border protection. While Johnson was at the border, I spoke with Blas Nunez Nieto, Assistant Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy at the Department of Homeland Security, about the migration problem and how in a divided Congress there's a need for bipartisan solutions. You know, the challenge we're facing today is unprecedented, uh, but it's uh, 
not a new challenge. It's a challenge that we have seen now going back more than a decade under presidents of both political parties. Uh, these surges in migration are now becoming increasingly regular and, and larger, and they are the direct result of our broken immigration and asylum system that Congress hasn't updated in decades. And, you know, until and unless the U.S. Congress steps up and does its job and updates these statutes, we're going to continue uh, to see these surges in migration uh, in the future. Negotiations are underway right now, as you know, in the Senate uh, regarding a package that would be used to, you know, help uh, Ukraine and Israel and also the border. Um, so uh, what is it that the White House is looking for in these negotiations? Well, I'll let the White House uh, speak for themselves, but I, I will say that, you know, we here at DHS are, are encouraged, you know, by the bipartisan conversations in the Senate, and we hope uh, that uh, members of both parties in both chambers of Congress will step up and again uh, makes take some meaningful steps to address uh, the infirmities in our immigration and asylum system that are leading so many migrants to uh, take the dangerous journey north and cross our border unlawfully. Uh, we also desperately need the emergency supplemental funding that has been requested to support our uh, men and women on the front lines uh, in Texas and in other border communities across the southwest border, as well as the funding through the SSP grant program uh, for border communities and NGOs. Uh, that, you know, I can't stress enough the, you know, importance of adequately funding our enforcement efforts at the border in terms of, you know, personnel, infrastructure, and technology as well as our rest of the immigration system to include the immigration courts, uh, which are you know, hopelessly under-resourced today. Well, today, Speaker Johnson and about 50 other Republican representatives are in uh, Eagle Pass on the Texas-Mexico border, getting a look-see as the surge of migrants coming across. And we're going to hear probably the same sort of rhetoric about the border and, this, and calling it an, an invasion. But they're there. And people see that as significant. Uh, what, what do you want uh, Speaker Johnson to take away from his trip to the border? Well, I think first and foremost, I hope they, you know, uh, talk to the men and women on the front lines who are, you know, working under extremely challenging conditions and, and you know, uh, making great sacrifices personally in order uh, to secure the border and help us manage with this uh, challenge. Uh, that we have been uh, facing, again, not just the last two years, but going back more than a decade. And I'm also hopeful that they, uh, as a result of the trip, really understand the need to provide the resources that have been requested uh, to support those men and women on the front lines, and also to update and modernize our immigration system uh, when they come back uh, to Congress. Again, I'm hopeful that the U.S. Senate will craft a uh, bipartisan compromise to address what we are seeing on the border and that the House, uh, after their trip to the border, uh, will uh, be appropriately motivated to take up what the Senate produces and pass it. We typically hear from Republican representatives describing what's happening on the border. They call it an open border. They say this is these are you know, this is what Republican Congress people say that Biden is inviting these people to come to the border. He is deliberately uh, allowing them to cross over into America, that this is some, this is a, 
They say this is what the president wants. What's your response? Well, look, I, I think that the politics of immigration has become toxic in this country, uh, but the challenge we're facing is a real one. Uh, and it is one that, you know, playing politics isn't going to resolve. We need an actual political solution here. And so, um, you know, I, I am hopeful, again, that um, our representatives, when they see what is happening firsthand, will come back motivated to try to come up with an actual solution that is bipartisan. Uh, there is This is not an issue that either political party can solve on its own. With regards to allegations that we are not enforcing the laws or somehow inviting people, you know, I would just point to the facts, which are that since uh, May 12th, when the public health emergency ended on our border, we have removed or returned more than 460,000 people uh, who crossed our border unlawfully. That is a record uh, under Title VIII processing for the period of time that we're talking about. We've also taken executive actions to strengthen the consequences for unlawful entry through our circumvention of lawful pathways rule that puts common sense conditions on asylum eligibility for those uh, individuals who cross unlawfully and don't take advantage of the historic expansion and lawful pathways that we have overseen. And so, you know, we have taken meaningful steps to try to deal with this challenge through our executive actions. But we recognize that there is no lasting solution here that doesn't involve the U.S. Congress, which is why, again, I am uh, really imploring your listeners to reach out to their members of Congress and impress upon them the need to provide the funding that has been requested and also to update our broken system. The flow of fentanyl is a big concern here in Texas, um, but uh, we frequently hear the there's a confluence of uh, of these issues of all oh, these, you know, we have a problem with border security and they bring up fentanyl, although the facts don't support that. Even the Cato Institute in 2022 put out a report saying 89% of the fentanyl that comes into America is brought over by American citizens crossing through ports of entry. Why aren't we able to really just explain that to people that uh, there is no fentanyl crisis coming across the border with migrants? So that's a, a you know, great question. It is uh, unquestionably true that the vast majority of the narcotics that come into the United States are coming through our ports of entry. Uh, it's one of the reasons why you know, we have requested funding for the US Congress to continue to modernize our ports of entry and to provide what we call non-intrusive inspections technology, uh, essentially uh, the X-ray machines that uh, vehicles uh, and commercial trucks have to go through at the border. Uh, we do believe, again, that the Cato Institute's analysis matches our internal analysis that the vast majority of fentanyl and narcotics are coming through the ports of entry. Uh, in terms of you know, the difficulty and in, in, uh, in the conflation of that with migration, again, I think you know, we are seeing uh, a lot of politicians playing politics with both the migration challenge and the fentanyl crisis in this country. Uh, but what we really need is a bipartisan political solution here, not uh, each party uh, or different political parties playing uh, political games with these issues. The mayor Eagle Pass says uh, that they're being overwhelmed uh, by the number of people who are crossing into the uh, into Texas unauthorized right there and he feels ignored by President Biden. What could happen here to to help uh, the mayor deal with this situation? 
Well, the first thing I, I would note is that, you know, we are, we did announce yesterday that we will be reopening four uh, ports of entry along the border, including uh, the Eagle Pass uh, International Bridge uh, One. Uh, that is the result of what we have seen uh, on the border the last two weeks, which is a significant decline uh, in uh, unlawful entries and encounters at the border. That could be due to the time of year. This is uh, a time of year when we generally do see a reduction in uh, unlawful entries at the border. And it could also be the result of some of the actions the government of Mexico has taken uh, as a result of the meetings that took place uh, with President Lopez Obrador, Secretary Mayorkas and Secretary Blinken uh, last week. Uh, and uh, those actions include stepped up enforcement on some of the trains, the commercial trains that migrants were using to circumvent law enforcement, which are uh, incredibly dangerous for the migrants who ride on them. So we welcome the government of Mexico's efforts here. Uh, and we, again, uh, have seen a reduction in entries in Eagle Pass in particular over the last uh, week. Uh, so we are, uh, will be continue to watch what happens on the border very closely and we will uh, surge resources to the border as needed uh, in order to manage this crisis uh, or these challenges on the border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has started his own border security effort, Operation Lone Star, where he's put the buoys in the water to razor wire along the edges. He's also busing migrants into other parts of the country without notifying where they're going, when they're going to get there, so there's no help when they arrive. Politics is a large part of this. Is there a way that there could be some level of cooperation or outreach or try to work with Greg Abbott in trying to achieve uh, uh, a, a cooperating with the federal authorities? Because, you know, we have and we're seeing the, the, the lawsuits going back and forth about razor wire and all that. What do you want to see happening with, with uh, Governor Abbott? Yeah, that's so... You know, that's a great question. I, I would say, you know, we have consistently asked uh, the governor to coordinate any efforts the state of Texas may want to take with the federal government, as well as the communities that they are sending migrants to. Uh, you know, I think this is, again, this challenge we're facing on the border in terms of migration is a challenge that requires an all of government response. And we have been working extremely closely with state and local governments on the border and throughout the country. Uh, in Texas, we have excellent uh, coordination at the local level with uh, police and uh, law enforcement entities and mayors. And we would love to see the same kind of uh, coordinated uh, efforts uh, and uh, just enhanced co collaboration with the state of Texas. Unfortunately, uh, we have seen uh, the state of Texas take actions unilaterally that often put migrants in harm's way and adversely impact other uh, states and other cities. And, uh, you know, that is uh, just unfortunate playing of politics here. What we really need here, again, is a bipartisan recognition that this is a challenge that requires an all of government response and for our governors and our members of Congress to come together and work on a solution that works for the whole country and uh, not just for one political party or the other. Blas Nunez Nieto is the Assistant Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. After the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School, the town of Uvalde was left to deal with an incredible tragedy, the loss of 21 lives. 
19 students and two teachers. This impacted the entire community. In a small town in Texas, everyone is connected, and frequently those connections are made and fostered while cheering for the local high school football team. As part of the ABC News year-long initiative, Uvalde 365, ABC News producers followed the local high school football team, Uvalde Coyotes, the coaches and players throughout the season, and documented how the local gridiron was a way for many to honor the losses at Robb Elementary and also find a way for many to heal as a community. Listen to me. I want you to think about all we've been through. And I, I'm talking about everything. Being an inspiration to your town. For these three hours, play fast, have fun, and play hard. And if you do that, they got no chance to beat you. Understood. Take care of your business. Let's go kick some ready. Go! 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 Ladies and gentlemen, can you believe it? The time is here. You got the Coyotes football. We're broadcasting live from Carrizo Springs, Texas, here at the Carrizo Springs Stadium. Well, I tell you, the, the game of football is something that brings the whole community together. I think we need something like this. You look across the field, you look at the people actually sitting in the stands on the home side of the stadium, and they're all wearing maroon Uvalde Strong shirts. And if that's not a sense of South Texas community, I don't know what else. Jenny Wagner Quartz is the ABC News senior producer of 21 Loyal and True. When Uvalde happened, obviously national news, like we send in this, you know, huge teams of people in to cover the shooting, especially the day of the shooting. A couple of days into covering this, um, the executive producer of the I unit, Cindy Galley, she said, she said, what if we stay? This is a, Uvalde is unique and that's, you know, it's a, it's a small community. It's isolated. San Antonio is the next biggest city. It's an hour and a half removed from that. So they're this kind of standalone community in South Texas. What if we stayed and just followed this community for an entire year? We had no idea what that looked like. It was just, we got them, you know, right then it was, yes, we're going to commit to doing this. So one of our very first initial group meetings, our senior producer the, who's going to lead us, he said, we've got to find ways to tell the whole story and what this community is going through. And so we can't, obviously focusing on the families who lost children and lost, you know, their, their, their spouses and um, parents were the teachers. Obviously, we're going to focus on those thread throughs and those storylines. But what else can we follow? What what else says community? We've got to kind of tap into the story and the heartbeat of this community. And just off the cuff, our senior producer uh, said, wonder if the high school football team has anything going on. He goes, I wonder if they're any good. And, you know, it is small. It's Texas, right? And high school football is big in Texas. And super quick Google search, the athletic director and head football coach Wade Miller was on social media just from like the week prior and had posted that they were going to have a special senior, one of the senior captains that was going to be voted on by the rest of the football team as a leader. They were going to each year wear the number 21 jersey in honor of the 21 victims. For me, it was a, it was a natural fit. I raised my hand and I said, I'll take football. And so I, you know, I reached out to the coach, Wade Miller. We started a dialogue. We were having, he and his wife, and I just was explaining to them the project and would they want to be involved and just being really honest, just right from the beginning. We don't know what this looks like. 
we don't know what we're doing with this yet, but we are committed to being here for a year. And so would you like to be a part of that? They wanted to think about it. They didn't lose anyone in the shooting, but they were still, this community was still reeling. Like it was just a, I don't know how to describe the feeling in that first couple of months in Uvalde, except for just no one was smiling, right? And, and it was just a heaviness in town all the time, especially, you know, we're meeting people out in public. And so it's a small town. And so everybody's really guarded in just how they react to things. And just, you know, it was just very solemn. I then reached out to um, the player, Justin Rendon. I reached out to his mother. Um, they agreed to meet. Mom and dad came and Justin. And they were very um, cautious uh, about working with us only from the sense that they did not want to take any of the attention away from the people who lost children and and, and the teachers' families. Um, it's super tight-knit town. And so you start to realize all of the connections that people have to to the victims and their families. And we didn't know that um, at the time when I'm sitting down, you know, with the Rendon specifically. But we, we had great conversation. Justin's father, at the time, he's a San Antonio homicide detective. And so he talked with me about he was on duty in San Antonio that day and, you know, how he drove over as fast as he could. And just the things that were going through his mind at the time. And, you know, they, they, the Rendones had their youngest son was in Rob, not in, not in the wing and, and luckily in a different part of the school, but they just, you know, they did, they talked to us just about the fear that, that initial moments of fear that they had that day. And, um, but they wanted, they were super excited for Justin being um, nominated as to wear the number 21. And they were thrilled for his senior football season, but they were just so, um, careful about sh showing that joy you know what I mean like they just didn't know how to navigate it yet so there was a lot of kind of anxiousness building up to that first starting in the first game but they they were like absolutely they would love we didn't know at the time that we were going to follow the football team for the whole year like this was just kind of the initial conversation so we um the school district they were very gracious obviously very they were very guarded and closed off information wise was the shooting was concerned and the investigation, but they allowed us to follow the football team, like go to practices. And they were very good about that from the beginning. I could, you know, would send an email or a text or a call or whatever and say, can we, can we do this? And they, they, um, they, they were open to that from the very beginning of always communicating with them. No, no surprise visits, you know, to the school. Um, always checking in, always making sure that they knew we were coming in advance, getting permission for, I mean, you know, we were very um, careful about how we handled that um, because it was a delicate relationship and we were building trust along the way. Right. And so um, it's not like we could build up the trust and then start the football season. We were having to start the football season and, and work on that as, as it was happening. So it was a delicate relationship. I hope that, um, you know, that they feel that we, respected um that relationship along along the way but um so we started going to their practices in the summer and then we had the first football game it was an away game and um they won the game tw they scored 21 points and they won the game 21 to 13 and it was like just one of those moments when at the time, I thought, wow, this is going to be the biggest storyline of following this team as their very first game. They scored 21 points. Like the P it was the first time that, that and it was an away game. 
the the home team they all wore you know these they had done a fundraiser for uvalde they had made these maroon shirts and so their normal colors are purple and gold and it was just like this whole smear of maroon on the home side you really couldn't tell the difference between the home and the away when you're looking at it you know across the field it was pretty cool um and so you know they they win by and they're scoring 21 points and it was the first time in the in the three months that I had been there that I had seen anyone really smile. It was the first time that I had seen anyone kind of like exhale and be joyful. And then after the, you know, the win, Uvalde, they, the fans home and away, they go along that front rail of the stands after the game and they all lean over and the team winner, winner lose the team lines up and they run and they high five all of their fans. And it's really sweet tradition that, that they do. And, it was just exciting to to watch them cheer and, and support these boys. And we had been working with the Houston Texans just to kind of do something special for the team. And the Houston Texans were like, oh, we're all in. We've already given a check because their head athletic trainer and sports medicine director is from Uvalde. And so they were like, we, we are already, you know, on board with doing whatever we can. And so they ended up sending the football team all the players brand new cleats gloves mouthpieces and then bought new uniforms for the football team and when they put the order in for the uniforms for the football team the company that did the uniforms they were like we want to get uniforms for the entire athletic department so every sport in uvalde high school got new uniforms um that that year that 2022 fall season um because you know the houston texans started started that that wave and so it was just nice to see the ripple effect and so we were like this is you know this is all pretty cool we go into that first home football game and it had already been decided uh in 1972 uvalde won the state championship and i'm telling you those men are like town heroes 50 years later and people talk about that that's the biggest that's like one of the biggest things to happen in Uvalde is to to win the state championship and they're still local heroes and they were bringing all of that that team back and the cheerleaders and the band they were bringing everybody back from that 1972 and so it was a big weekend and so um it's a sellout crowd they haven't sold out a crowd in probably more than a decade in Uvalde. And so it's a sellout crowd, a lot of anticipation, and now a lot of, you know, angst and anxiousness now because of the shooting that has happened. Um, but they have, but they have a big parade, um, all this stuff, you know, going on for them. And it was, it was exciting. And then we get to the game and as you'll see in the documentary, like it's this super tight game. It's just back and forth, scoring, scoring. And then, Wade Miller, the coach, he really, there was 12 seconds, you know, left on the clock and Uvalde scores a touchdown with this incredible play with his name's Jonathan Jimenez. And he, he, you know, he kind of bounces off scrum of the players and it does an end around and comes up and he runs out of gas before he can score. Snap is off, end around to Jonathan Jimenez. Jonathan Jimenez trying to find a corner, does not find it, but actually reverses field, reverses field, has a lot of daylight. Down the 30, down the 20, to the 15, 10, all the way down to the 6-yard line. A beautiful piece of running by Jonathan Hernandez. 
Wade was just trying to run out the clock and they were going to go into overtime. Like that really was his, his plan. And then Jonathan, you know, bounces out and, and goes on down and they end up scoring and winning the game. And, you know, the team's running, everybody's elated. I mean, it was just, it was electric and it was so much fun and the crowd was crazy. And, you know, you have that 1972 team there and it was just, it was just like, I don't know how to describe it. I've been to many sporting events in my life, many big ones. And that one, this one will rank up in the top. Like this was, it was electric. It was just, it was emotional. It was just everything that this town needed at that time. Jeannie Wagden Quartz is the ABC News producer of the documentary 21 Loyal and True, produced in partnership with ESPN Films. The special is streaming on ESPN Plus, and it premieres on ABC News Live on Friday, January 5th at 7 p.m. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. You can find past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can find us, download us, and subscribe wherever you find great podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.